How's everybody doing this morning? Anybody had a hot dog or a hamburger this weekend? Because if you haven't, you have missed your opportunity, right? This is the 4th of July. So uh, we, we celebrate freedom as a country, of course. Um, That's something I'm passionate about. I served in the military, as many of uh, you guys did. And, uh, and I'm incredibly thankful for the service that, uh, that men and women have given to the freedom of the United States. Uh, part of that freedom is to, freedom to screw up. <laughs> so we've not always done it well as a nation, uh, but I think the founding fathers had it in their heart in the very beginning to uh, to go after freedom. That was something that was a really big deal. And uh, interestingly enough, that came from uh, came from the kingdom of heaven. That came from God. That concept of all men, right? They're, there's they're created equal, but there's a pursuit. The Bible ta- or uh, the, the the founding fathers talked about a pursuit of happiness, but there was a pursuit of freedom that came from the kingdom that was, again, established in, in, our, uh, in our lives as a nation. So that's something that's really important. Um, you can't have rest uh, without freedom. You can't have freedom without rest. There's something, they're tied together. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that um, in the future. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, especially if you can be here next week, I'm going to go after something that um, I think is really, really powerful. Um, it, it, it changed my life in ways that I can't even begin to tell you. Uh, years and years ago, I heard a message, and the title of the sermon was called Good, The Goodness of God is the Linchpin of All Theology. Um, and that, I, I, when I heard that, I thought, eh, maybe, we'll see, right? <laughs> it wasn't like a real interesting concept for a sermon, I thought, until I heard it, and it really transformed my life. So we're going to go after that a little bit next week. So if you struggle, if, if you struggle and challenge with some of the challenges of, you know, I'm not sure God's good, you know, why would a good God allow things to happen, bad things to happen to me? Um, that kind of thing. If those are some of the things that you've struggled with in your life, definitely don't, uh, don't miss next week. It's going to be really, really good. We're going to go after that in this series. Um, I'm going to continue the series uh, called Rest. We talked a little bit last week. I'm going to kind of re- recap a couple of things, and we're going to go after some things. But we talked a little bit last week and began with God's intention for mankind was to establish him in a continual state a blessing and faithfulness. And so that's important. Um, when we talk about rest, we forget sometimes that because we think in terms of earthly rest or natural rest that, you know, there, there are rhythms of rest, and we get that. We see that in, in Scripture. But God's intention for mankind and his intention for you and I is that we would find a state of rest. We would find the Sabbath, not just a Sabbath, which would happen every week as a reminder of something that was much bigger and something that was much, much deeper. And so as God's original intention was to see us walk in a continual state of blessing and fruitfulness. And the way we know that is we see that in Scripture. We see that um, we talked last week about the, the mention, uh, first mention principle and how when you see this in Scripture, what you see the first time that you see Sabbath, the first time that you see this rest that we're talking about, uh, and those words are interchangeable. The, the Hebrew word Shabbat is rest, uh, Sabbath, seven. They're all interchangeable, and, they, and you see that tie throughout all the Scripture. Uh, to really go after this would take literally weeks and weeks, if not years. Um, but God's intention was in the beginning, the Bible said that he would walk with Adam and, the, Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. There was something about this connection that they had in the garden. And we're going to get to it in just a second, but just keep in mind that Adam had something to do. That work was not something that came uh, after the fall. Work actually came before the fall. What came after the fall, the Bible says, was that when you, when you see fruitfulness, you would see it by the sweat of your brow. Right? So that's important to understand because God's intention was never for us to see fruitfulness come by the sweat of our brow. That was never his intention. 
But that you hear that all the time. I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos, and, and I, I hate the ads. It drives me absolutely nuts. I understand the reason for ads, of course, um, but I hate them. And, and one of the ones that drives me crazy is some guy, you know, opens up a, a package of the check that he just got that he's making, you know, like $40,000 a month or something, you know. And if you just do what he's telling you, of course, you'd also make $40,000 a month. And, you know, he always makes it sound so easy. And, I'm, you know, that, that thing in the back of my head, my dad taught me at some point, you know, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is, right? By the way, that also got in the way of me understanding the gospel because <laughs> it's, it's the one thing in all of, the, all of existence that, you know, it seems too good to be true, but it actually is true. And so anyway, that's a whole other series. <laughs> but, uh, but this whole concept of, of rest was, again, it was designed, God designed work and, and labor, you know, we hear the word labor sometimes, we think, uh, again, we tie it to the fall in the sense that we feel, you know, it's, it's connected to sweat, it's connected to work, hard work, it's connected to the grind, you know, the, uh, the, under the fall, the ground, the Bible says, was cursed, and because of that, the, the, even the fruitfulness of the ground, you had to till the ground, you had to work it hard. Um, it, all over the world, you, you see different ways that, that, that uh, uh, plants grow, and one of the interesting places I've been in my life was in Costa Rica. And Costa Rica is is gets a lot of water, a lot of sunshine. You know, it's a real nice temperature. There's a reason why a lot of people vacation there, and, and a lot of expats move to Costa Rica. Um, but one of the reasons why is so fruitful. And and I, I remember driving down the road one time in the mountains, and I looked over, and there were trees growing out of the fence posts, out of the top of the fence posts. And what had happened is seeds had gotten in there, right, and they germinated, and literally whole trees had grown out of these fence posts. And it was such a common occurrence because in that, in that continuum, if you will, um, things just grow really, really rapidly. Could you imagine what the garden was like before the fall? That there was no need for tilling, there was no need for fertilizing, there was no need for any of those things. The ground brought forth fruit without any labor. That's at least without any sweat, labor, what the Bible talks about after the fall. So God's intent, again, was for us to walk in blessing and fruitfulness. You see this in the life of Adam and Eve before the fall. But that was what rest looked like. So we talked about the Sabbath purpose. Um, The fruitfulness, increase, rulership of dominion was part of the blessing of God. We read that in Genesis 127. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Also, by the way, first mention, male and female, there, it's another series uh, topic. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So there was something that was, was being accomplished. God gave them something to do. Um, God determined about the Sabbath that it would be a perpetual day. Remember, it's a state of something. It's not a day that comes and then goes and then comes and then goes. That's the natural rhythm of the Sabbath that, that God said to honor a particular day over other days. And part of why he was doing that is to remind us that that, that rhythm that, that we see on a, on a weekly basis, that God designed that to be an established perpetual day, a way of being where there was a restful fruitfulness. So think about that for a second. A, a place of fruitfulness that came from rest, a, cre- a place of increase, and a place of dominion that came from rest. Hard to imagine um, that in, in some ways. It doesn't imply that there was nothing for man to do. So again, th- when we think of rest, so often we think, you know, I'm going to sit on the couch and veg and watch TV, or maybe rest for you is sitting in a recliner, or maybe rest for you is in a hammock on the beach. There's lots of different ways 
that, that you might call, call rest, but most of the time it doesn't involve doing something. But I know a lot of people who can't rest unless they're doing something. So the way you think about it is it's recharging your batteries. And some people, to sit and do nothing does not recharge their battery. So sometimes, you you know, again, it could be a hobby, it could be whatever, but it's something about doing something that causes, you know, even causes rest to occur. So we talked about working from rest last week and got into this a little bit. So I want to take another look at that. So remember in Genesis chapter 1, God had just made everything. He'd made all the animals. He'd made uh, the sun, um, you know, the light the dark, out of darkness. He made everything, and the Bible says he called it good. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we're going to pick it up there, um, he, he makes mankind. He creates the crowning achievement, his glory. It says, uh, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So this is after he made, he'd made everything, and he said it was good, right? He made all the animals, everything around us, he said it was good. And so, again, first mention, when, when people, I hear a lot of people get, get kind of um, agitated when people talk about uh, climate, uh, climate, what is it, thank, thank you, climate change. It used to, be, uh, used to be a different phrase that they used, and <laughs> everybody knows this, right? It used to be global warming, and still things, things started getting cool. So, I'm, you know, I'm not going to tell you where I stand on that, but I can tell you I don't stand with, with just everybody who kind of, um, buys into certain uh, arenas, and, and I would suggest that maybe you don't do that as well. Uh, too often we, we get information, um, and we just assume that the information is accurate without doing any research. And I, I just push back on anybody, whether that's, again, whether that's something that Christians, you know, kind of lean into or Christians don't lean into. So it's better not to be um, uh, a lemming, let me put it that way, and just follow without thinking for yourself. But the reason why some of this is important, again, is God had created good things. So when he created the earth, he said it's good. And so there's a responsibility that we have to the earth. Um, but, it's, but it's secondary. Let me say that and, and make sure you understand. It's secondary to some other things that God says is more important. One of those things is people. And we know that because, again, first mention, God said, hey, everything I made is good. But then he made mankind, and he said, this is very good. And, and Jesus came back to that on, on numerous occasions and spoke into the goodness in the sense that God's intent was to create a people that he could love, right? That he could give his love and he could receive his love from. And so Genesis um, picked that up and talks about on the seventh day, uh, verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And it was important, there was evening and then there was morning. He didn't say there was morning and the evening. That's how we think of time. That's how we think of days. But it wasn't how God thought of days. And so it's helpful to remember that, and I mentioned this last week, that, um, that the way God thinks and the way you and I think often aren't the same. And so the, the goal is to allow our minds to be transformed to his mind, to, be, to think like God. The Bible says that when we become Christians, that he's given us the mind of Christ. Too often, though, we don't use it. In other words, we keep thinking an old way when God's trying to give us a new way to think. He talks about the gospel being, being a new and living way. And he said that to a people who were under the law, who'd been under an old way, and it was a dying way, is what the Bible talked about, the law. And so he said about Christ, he said, this is a new and a living way. So it's helpful because when God wants to get your attention about this, oftentimes he'll challenge you and he'll say things and if you read it too fast in Scripture, you'll miss the implications of it. So it's always good a good, good thing to ask a question and say, why did he say night? You know, he said uh, it was uh, evening and then there was morning on that day. 
Why did he do that? It's very important. And verse 1 in chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And we mentioned last week how um, God didn't rest because he was tired. Right? Again, we make the assumption we tend to make God like ourselves. That's where all idolatry comes from, right? Is we tend to think of God the way we think of ourselves. So we say, well, and this, you see this in Greek mythology, you study all other religions, what you see is there's always uh, uh, the attempt to make God into our own image, because that's, we're, we're typically, we're selfish, that's what sin does to us, and it makes us self-centric, right? And it, and it gets us in all kinds of trouble. And so the, the, the challenge that God brings, is he says, I want you to think a different way, I want you to understand this a different way, and so when we read into this, if we're not careful, um, we'll miss it. So God wasn't resting because he was exhausted, because he was tired. So what does that say about you and your rest? Right? Do you rest because you're tired? Do you rest because you're exhausted? Um, do you rest because, you know, I've had enough, right? And, and those things are true of us, I think. And I think what the, the challenge that the Lord's trying to bring to us is, what if it looked different than that? What if rather than um, resting from all the work that you've taken on, right, which, again, if you paint the picture in, in Scripture the way, the way Genesis paints the picture, he doesn't paint the picture as God rested because he was tired. It's really important um, that we capture this. So, so what did, why did God rest? And the answer was because he completed something, because he was satisfied, because he was fulfilled, because everything he set out to do, he had accomplished. Right, think about that for a second. What if, what if you you captured what it was that you were about and what it was that you were supposed to be doing, what you were giving your life away for, what you were exchanging time for, right? What if you knew that ahead of time and, and so therefore you could gauge on any given time, on any given day, in any given moment, any given interaction or relationship that what you were doing was the most valuable thing you could be doing with that time? So I used to teach... Uh, uh, consulting business, and, and I spent a lot of time with time management consulting, especially for um, busy CEOs and busy, you know, uh, uh, business owners. And one of the things that, they, that always happened was that the, almost always they were ca- trying to play catch-up. And so, and, and so they would get caught up in things that had no value. When you, when you thought about the value that they bring to the company, they would get caught up in things that had no value. And so I've been in conversations, coffee with people, and, you know, they're pretty broken, they're hurting, or just needing to, they just need some insight. And so I'm having a, co- a coffee with them, and they'll say things, they'll apologize to me and say, man, I'm so sorry that I brought you out here to listen to this, and you know, and, and, to, and, and I just feel like I'm just dumping on you. You know, I, I know you got better things to do, and I always stop them, and maybe you've been one of these people. I, I always stop them, and I say to them, there is no place I would rather be than right here with you. And you know Why? is because when you made the phone call and said, can we get coffee? I thought about that based on what I know the Lord has me doing. And I made the decision to say yes or no before I spent the time with you. <laughs> so think about that for a second. That's what God does. God's, God's time with you, what he's done, his intention behind why he sent Jesus was not an accident. Wasn't he just, he's like, oh, look, I made man and they screwed up. My bad, let's play catch up, right? And we know that's true because the Bible says of Jesus that he was, he, the, that the Lamb of God, speaking of Christ, was slain before the foundations of time. 
And that's hard for us to wrap our head around because the question then comes, well, Lord, if you knew we were going to sin, why didn't you just stop us from sinning? Right? And that same mindset comes into play when, when we say, well, why do bad things happen to good people? And we're going to be talking a little bit about that in, in, next, in that next week's message. But part of the challenge is to remember is God thought this through. None of this stuff is unintentional at all. Every bit of what God is doing, he's doing on purpose, in design. And the key to understanding that is, one, is you're not ever going to understand God. Now, let me, let me just kind of take a second and pause here and say this. You can never completely understand God. You can apprehend Him, but you cannot comprehend Him. Now, you can comprehend a lot of things about Him. There are things that you can get, that you can capture, but if you think for a second that you're going to understand completely everything that God does and why He does it, then He's not God, right? Right? He's just a product of your own imagination, and you're actually above that, and so you can dictate to him what you want him to be. This is the problem, again, with idolatry, is we make Jesus to be the Jesus we want rather than the Jesus he's revealed himself to be, right? And so when we capture that and we understand, well, that, how does that work when it comes to rest? And the picture that God paints is that I don't want you resting from work. I want you working from a place of rest. So remember, capture this for a second. Jesus, I mean, sorry, uh, God is walking with Adam and Eve, and the Bible says in the cool of the day. So before the fall occurs, he's given, he's given Adam things to do, right? The Bible says he's, he's given him the ability to identify, to, to define. He, give, he gives them the ability to define the animals. He gives all of them na- names. God, God doesn't pick any of the names. Adam gives all the names. Why? Because he said, one of the things I've given you is rulership. And so whatever you call this, in this state without sin, whatever you call this animal, you get to define the confines of this animal. It's a fascinating concept to think about. And so this is also true with you and your kids. You get, as a parent, God has given you, he's delegated to you authority, just like he delegated to Adam in the garden to define animals, right? He's given to you also the ability to define your kids. You know where that starts is with a name, right? And so often in our culture, we pick names for all kinds of reasons. That was my favorite uncle. You know, it was my grand, my, I'm named after my grandfather and my grand, grandmother, their, their middle names, it's, it's fine, it's one way, but what I discovered was my, whether they intended to or not, God, na- uh, God named me through my parents. My name is David, that means in the Bible, beloved of God, right? So I, I recognize that God had a hand on me and a heart after me in the very beginning, all the way from the beginning. I know people who've changed their people in this church, who've changed their names, because their names did not define them, Right? And so what, what, why is that important? Because God, what, part of what God's re- reminding you of is if you walk with him in, in the cool of the day, if you spend time with God, then you're praying over your kids. You get to define your kids from a place of rest. You don't have to spend time worrying about your kids and, and fretting about your kids. And, and I'm like, I know I'm saying that to moms, and you're like, you don't understand, Dave. You'll never get it. That's fine. I, maybe that's true to some degree. But I, I want to challenge us to remember that the reason why this is important is not just because it's a, it's a beautiful doctrine in Scripture, but because it's designed to transform the way you think about your life and what you do. How you do business, of course. How you do work, of course. But how you do everything. How you do your marriage. How you raise your kids. How you look at politics. How you look at uh, business and finance. Everything, if it doesn't come from this place of rest where you're walking with God in the cool of the day, you're communing with Him. He's given you the ability to find that is a delegated authority that He's given to you. But if you don't know that, 
then you begin to define things in the wrong way. So you define your life by the circumstances surrounding your life rather than who God says you are and what he's called you to. So let me give you an example. Um, I run across this a lot. Um, Leading churches can be very frustrating as in just about anything else in life. And one of the reasons why is you always feel like, man, it could have been so much better. By now we should have been here or there. So you give expectations to whatever, you know. Because in your head you're like, oh, yeah, this is what success looks like, right? Because there are certain defining virtues of success from church world and from just life in general. The problem with that is success can only be defined by the one who defines everything. So if you define your life in success as you make X amount of money, you have completely missed the mark. You are in sin if you do that. That's literally what sin means is you've missed the mark. If you define your marriage, and the Bible says this is very interesting. It says don't judge yourselves by yourselves, right? Don't, don't compare yourselves one to another. Don't do that. The Bible says it's literally not wise to do that. Why? Because you have different gifts, different callings, different personalities, all these different things. The way you define yourself, if you're going to do it the way God intended, is to define yourself the way he defines you, right? And he's very specific in how he does that, so we're going to jump into that in just a second. We talk about rest comes before fruitfulness. So the idea is if you want to be fruitful in your life, in other words, if if you can labor and do a lot of work or you can be fruitful, which one would you choose? If you had to choose the, between the two, it's not always a, you know, an X, Y kind of definition, but if you had to choose, which one would you rather do? Just work hard and get hardly anything done or from a place of rest, be fruitful. And that's what God's called us to do is to be fruitful, but it doesn't always work the same way we think. So God's thing, God's way always leads to God's result. We've talked about this many, many times in, in this church. Um, let me kind of go to Ephesians 2.4, and I want to kind of define this, this Scripture, go after the Scripture with this, this phrase. So listen carefully. Man begins his work after God has finished his. Let me say that again. The way God intended you, to, you and I to exist is for you to begin something after God has finished it. So parenting. If you are parenting, I hear people all the time say, my goodness, how do you parent? How do you do this? It's just so difficult and so challenging, especially in this world. And, and, and I hear that, and I'm like, uh, I get it. I, I, leading is the same way. Doing anything is the same way. Mar- leading a, a family, a marriage, leading a church, leading a business. I get it. There's challenges involved. But if you understand this principle that man should begin his work after God has finished his, then you come back to the place of rest and say, Lord, I wonder if maybe you took some time to think through what parenting would look like. Right? You ever wonder that? I wonder if God has some ideas about parenting. It's, this is, happens on a regular basis. People will come to us and go, uh, we really need help with our marriage. And I'm like, hey, awesome. Let's sit down. Let's talk it through. You know, Karen, usually Karen and I will sit down. And what we're looking for is how far off of God's design for marriage are they? <laughs> and and what, I, what we've discovered is the degree of brokenness that a marriage exists in or a person is an individual in whatever arena the deg- and doesn't mean that it's always something they've done. Sometimes it's something that's been done to them. So I'm not, just, I'm not blaming people. That's what I'm saying. So hear me when I say this. But what we've discovered is, is, is if you get off of the, God's design for marriage, you, it will become dysfunctional and broken. There's no possibility that it won't. It's, it's no difference that I, I, I use this analogy sometimes like um, I, I've ridden in Cadillacs before, some really nice Cadillacs, and the ride on those things is like, it's like driving a house around, right? You know, you can get up, fix coffee, and never spill it on you kind of thing. Um, but if you take it off-road, 
not so much. Right? Why? Because it was never, those cars were never designed to drive on anything but pavement, right? That was what they were designed for. So as long as you stay within the design, the confines of that design, it is the best you could possibly get. Maybe there's a better ride, but you, you get my point. And the same thing is true with, you, with us in, when it's in terms of our marriages, in terms of parenting, just life in general, how I see myself, the self-talk that I have, boundaries that I allow in my life, the fences that I create uh, that create safe places for me and for my family and for my nation and every other thing, right? Why do we have those things? Because they're by design, it's supposed to work a certain way. And if you do it outside of that, if you try to do God's thing and not do it God's way, you won't get God's result. If you try to do your thing, just forget God altogether. I'm going to do my thing my way. You're going to end up like Elvis and Frank Sinatra. You did it your way, and you're still dead, right? <laughs> and you went after all that success, and you, you read their stories, and you find that everything that they went after, they, they were still empty inside. Why? Because none of that was designed to fill us up. So it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how successful you are in any arena if your success has not already been defined by the one who defines everything. And so I just want to encourage you. Part of this, this, what we're going after is to allow, to come back to God's design. Allow yourself to be transformed, the Bible says, by the renewing of your mind. And, and one reason, one thing that gets in the way of that is why I talked about this already, about why we're going to talk about this next week, is if you don't believe God is good, you can never rest in his design. If you have not, if you've not seen evidence of God's goodness in your life, if you don't see his character, if you don't recognize him accurately, if you don't do that, then you will de- be defined by how wrong you are about God. That's how you'll live your life. We're doing men's, our men's meetings on Wednesday nights, and thank God for Tim leading us in that. He's done a phenomenal job, and it's just it's been amazing how deep we've gone in, in men's lives and how quickly we've, we've seen that happen. It's just obviously it's a move of God in our men, and I'm loving it. Man, I'm loving it. But one of the things that comes up often is we, we recognize there are parts of us, there's things that we're missing in our early life. You know, and we're going, we went through a book talking about the stages of a man's life, and, you know, and, and that one of the first ones is the beloved son. Right? To remember, recognize that God has called us to be his beloved son. That's his first definition of us, right? But so often because we have had fathers who have failed us, often because their fathers failed them, right? Then we don't ever get that defined in our life that we are a beloved son. So we're constantly trying to please our earthly father, and therefore that transfers into we also are trying constantly to, to please our heavenly father. And it turns out, scripturally and, and through grace, we recognize this in the cross, that the Father's already been pleased. So how would you live your life as a believer if you weren't trying to get God to love you and recognize that He already did? But Dave, you don't understand what I've done. Maybe I don't, but it's not like you snuck that by God, Right? So he knows everything you ever did, not just the things you did, but the thoughts you had that you didn't go through with, right? And you could never share with anybody because we would all think you're crazy and probably put you in a home, right? And that's true of all of us, by the way, not just you. <laughs> that's one of the ways the enemy gets you is tell you're the only one who goes through this or thinks of this, these thoughts. But the whole point is, is that God knew all of that and sent his son anyway and paid the price anyway. Why? Because he loves you. Like that's the beginning. He loves you. 
And because he loves you, you don't have to perform for him. You don't have to do anything to get him to love you because he already does. Nothing you're going to do is going to make him love you any more or any, any less. It's just not possible. And we know that God has given us evidence of his love for us in so many ways, but, but like Hebrew says, in these last days, you know, before it was that God spoke through the prophets, in these last days he spoke through his son. What did he say about his son? He said, my son, perfect in every way, becomes a sacrifice. He becomes the older brother. Like in the, in the prodigal son story, the older brother had more of the inheritance. He was supposed to take that inheritance and go after the broken young son, his brother. You remember what he said? And Jesus was on purpose saying this out loud to the Pharisees, the religious people. The older son says, that's not my brother. He's your son, but not my brother. And God's like, I mean, you talk about where we are. Think about just for a second, pause for a second, think about where we are as a nation right now. And the unrest and the challenge, not with COVID-19, but the racism, the issues of injustice. Think about that for a second in light of that scripture. That the older brother says, he's not my brother. He might be your son, but I'm not, I, don't, I refuse to take him as a brother. And, and Jesus, in contrast, became that older brother who came and laid down all the inheritance that he had been given so that he could win his younger brother back into the family, right? So he could participate in the party that came after that. So this is a side note, but again, why this is so important is what's the answer to the problems we have in the, in the United States right now and everywhere else in the world? Turns out that God is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Turns out the gospel is the answer to every issue of racism. Turns out the gospel is, is the answer to every bit of poverty. Every challenge that we have in this world, the gospel is the answer to that. But if we are not transformed as believers, we are continually part of the problem and, and not part of the solution. So if, as long as we're not transformed, you and I don't allow the work of God to be done in our own lives. We don't take personal responsibility for the work that God is doing in us. If we don't do that, then how are we going to affect our family and our families affect the, the, the towns and the communities that we live in, our churches, and on and on and on, and how's that going to affect the nation? So what does the enemy do? He comes and he tries to break down the family. But even before that, he tries to break you down. He tries to get you to think differently about how he defines you. And that's why this is so important. So let me read this scripture now in light of all that. This is Ephesians 2, uh, starting in verse 4. It says, but because of his great love for us, think about that. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved, and God, raised, uh, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Helpful to remember where it comes from. Verse 9, not by works. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So that no one can boast. Why, why, is, that, why is that scripture there? Why is that part of that scripture there? If it's, if it's anything you've done, you will become arrogant. This is what the Pharisees did when they made it and said, you know, it's, it's about the fact that we've done really well. One of, I mean, one of their favorite phrases true story <laughs> from you don't see this in the bible but this is part of the rabbinical um, books they said their prayer often as as a rabbi was thank you a pharisee was thank you god that i was not born a woman can you 
can you imagine saying that out loud, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, nowadays, you just go missing. That's what would happen with Because <laughs> women have been empowered. You know who started empowering them, by the way? It was Jesus, just in case you're wondering about that. But, but here's my point. <laughs> it says it's not by works. It's not by something you did. Because the moment you begin to believe you've done it, then you begin to build the, all of the 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 arrogance that comes from that, that somehow I did this. So not by works. It goes on, it says, um, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Listen to this last part of it because this is really important. We're going to jump into this. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So how much good should you do? How much money should you give? How much time should you give to prayer? What's, what's the answer to that? I remember I, I got caught up with, uh, can you not tarry one hour with me? There was this whole series that came out on cassette tape. They were new back then. Cassette tapes were new. And I remember listening to it and going, oh, God. And I'd try to pray for an hour, and I'd get to maybe 10 minutes, and I'd prayed everything I could think of, you know, I've, probably the whole Bible, I thought. And I was just like, um, this, this guy's a man of God, but not me, because I can only pray for 10 minutes. <laughs> and so what I did, what God meant for me to be, you know, Jesus challenged him when, when he says, can you not tarry one hour? Part of that was just be with him. That was part of what he was talking Not just the prayer, but can you not just be with me? And that's what we're getting at here. The whole point of this is, God's question is, can you just be with me first? If you could just sit with me, if you could just give me time, if you could just, if you could just allow your mind to be transformed, recognize how good I am and my intention for you is to be in a perpetual state of blessing and increase and dominion. That's his intention. Not in a negative way. God gives us authority as believers and with authority, the, Paul even mentioned this, he said God never gave him authority to tear down but only to build up. So delegated authority, any dominion that you're supposed to have as a person, as a human being, was designed to be dominion within the confines of God's way of doing things coming out of rest. So that perpetual state of dominion that God calls you to is to know that God is the one who has your back. You don't have to do it yourself. And so this whole picture is, it's not about, um, it's not about our work. So let me kind of wrap it up with this. This is a... This is a scripture in Ezekiel chapter 44. It's an interesting scripture about the priests. So through history, Israel had approached and worshipped God in all the wrong ways. You see this throughout the Old Testament. They'd not trusted the promises of God, but trusted their own good works to make them acceptable to God. So in light of that, let me read this scripture. Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 17 and 18. He's talking about the priests. When they enter the gates of the inner court, they are to wear linen clothes. Anybody ever been to the beach? If you live in here in Dothan, you go to the beach a lot, right? Um, linen's amazing. It wrinkles like crazy, all right? <laughs> Which drives me nuts. Like the second you put it, it's like, you know, it's like you've been, you know, stuffed in a cardboard box. Anyway, but it's the, it's the coolest clothing that you could wear, right? And there's a reason for that. He says, if you're going to uh, go to the court, they're to wear linen clothes. They not, must not wear any woolen garment while ministering at the gates of the inner court or inside the temple. And then it says this. This is the New American Standard uh, Version. It says, they are to wear linen turbans on their heads. So linen clothes, linen hat, right? And linen undergarments. Linen tidy whities if you will. But they wouldn't be tidy, probably, because they're linen. Uh, around their waist. And then listen to this. It says, they must not wear anything that makes them perspire. 
Think about that. You're, if you're going to minister in the temple, if you're going to minister, if you're going to represent God, you can't sweat. <laughs> right? It's fascinating, right? Especially in light of this. It's incredibly, incredibly revealing, right? Why? Why couldn't, why, well, why was God so concerned about that? Because it was, it was representative of who we were going to be to God. One of the worst things we can do as believers is to teach people who don't know God that you have to sweat, right? You have to sweat, you know, everything, you got to do everything right. You got to, you got to give you know, so much money, you got to pray so much time, you got to read your Bible this many times. You go through this list, and if you're not careful, what you end up doing is you end up putting woolen garments on you. That's kind of a picture of the old covenant, right? Woolen garment. That, that remember what happened after the fall? This is what he told Adam. He said, he said, when you labor to bring fruitfulness from the ground, because now the ground is cursed because of you and your sin, by the way. The ground was never meant to be cursed. The curse came from, the, from man sinning. My sin turns out curses other things, right? So think about that. But what would my righteousness do then in, in light of that? What, what would that look like? If, if, if my sin causes everything to degrade, what would me finding the righteousness of God in my life, what would it do to relationships? Would it cause fruitfulness? What would it do to my marriage? What would it do to parenting? What would it do to how I ran my business or any other thing, right? What would it do? Karen and I were talking uh, about... Um, you know, the checks that came in the mail not too long ago from our government. Um, our neighbors, uh, their son passed away a couple of years ago, and they got a, a, uh, a check in the mail for their son who's deceased. And so they, you know, did what was right, and they put it back in the mailbox. And the, the, uh, the mailman or post person <laughs> said, and every, I've delivered these like, you know, everywhere. It's been my job. No one has done that. She goes, they have literally have off, has the word deceased written on it. So it's not like they don't know. But no one has returned it. You guys are the only ones that have ever done that. And I think about that. And again, don't get me wrong. I, I look at, sometimes I, why do people steal? Right? This is some of the, lip, the, the left-wing argument that, that comes out so often. It's like, you know, the, the reason a person steals is because the government or society has failed them. There's truth in that. Right? It's not the only reason. But there's truth in that. And so, so why is that important? Because if you, if you see that you are the only way, if you're going to make it, it's going to be up to you. If, if you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, if you have to John Wayne this thing, right? The government's failed, everybody's failed you, and now there's that money laying there, I could, I could just take it. It's not mine, but I could just take it. I mean, don't I deserve it? This is the big problem of victimhood right now. It'll it. it it absolves you of responsibility for some terrible actions. You say, you know what? Because I've been a victim, I get to do this and nobody gets to say anything. It's a dangerous thing that's going on in our society right now. Where does it originate from? It originates from if I don't believe God is for me. I don't believe, I have not come to a place of rest where that I can trust God for my money. Every single time, let me tell you this story, this this. This fascinates me every time I talk about this. Talk, I actually told this story on Wednesday night. Uh, I'll keep it short. Most of you guys have heard it. We were in, in, in uh, Atlanta. Things were going really tough. It was a big turn down in the economy. It was really, really bad. I'd had four jobs in two years. I was working some, sometimes three jobs just to make ends meet. It was a really, really one of the toughest times in our life financially. 
And I was kind of at the end of my rope. It was Christmas time. I'm already, you know, that tends to, to uh, amplify whatever emotion you're feeling, right? Whether it's joy or not, it, it amplifies it. So if you're in discouragement or depression, it'll amplify it big time. It's why there's so many um, suicides around that time of year. So I'm, I'm sitting in a service. One of our teenagers just shared this amazing story of the kindness of God, and it was just, it was, it had, it had captured us as a congregation. People were weeping throughout the entire room, literally. It was, it was a powerful service. And in that moment, I'm sitting there going, God, I, I know you're good, but right, you ever butt God? <laughs> so I'm like, I know, you're, I know you're good, but God, you're so good, but, but I, I can't put tires on my car. I can't take care of my family. I went down the list. You know, I, I had a list. It was a running list. It got bigger all the time. And I said all those things. And my heart was, you know, God, if you really loved me, right? And it, it went literally all the way back to the book of Genesis. Did God really say? Did God really say he would take care of you? Did God really say he would be good to you? Did God really say that he would, that he would give you rest? Did, is, is that really, or is, it, or is it going to be you're going to sweat and it's got to be done by you? And so I'm sitting there in that moment. I'm, you know, waxing eloquent in my own mind about how pitiful I am. Victim mentality. And Greg comes off the platform he says, Dave, I was going to tell you this after service and give you the check, but he said, I felt like the Lord told me to do it now. And I'm like, man, God, you're so good. <laughs> like you, you knew where I was in that moment, and, that, and I needed a bit of a spanking. Now, I'm the one who gave me the spanking. God didn't. Let me, you know, let, let me help you understand that. But this is what he said. He said, I came down off the platform because I felt like you needed to hear this now. He said, someone put a check, uh, gave me a check um, for you for $5,000. And he said, and it's, it's on my desk, it's yours, you can pick it up after the service. Just wanted you to know that. And I, I couldn't talk for like a day or two, I couldn't talk. Because I was so overwhelmed, first of all, with the goodness of God. Because in the moment of complaining and whining and saying, man, it's, you know, God, you don't care about me and all these things, the provision that I needed for my life was sitting on a desk not more than 30 yards away from where I was sitting at the moment. Someone, God had spoken to somebody's heart long before I got to that moment and said, you know what, Dave needs some help. You got some extra money. Why don't you, why don't you write a check and just give him some money? $5,000 is not a small amount of money, especially at that time. It was a lot. So that was the first thing that overwhelmed me, that he had provided me for me before I realized that I had even needed it, right? The second thing that overwhelmed me was a bit of reality about who I, who I had defined him as. And because of that, who I had, how I had allowed him to, to define me. Because I had said he's not good, right, that he won't take care of me, that I have to do it myself, I was laboring by the sweat of my brow to produce something in my life, right? I was trying to obey God in everything that I was doing. But if I'm honest, I was a bit resentful at the same time because of him asking me to do it, right? So w- what that really said was I had to work on this whole issue of lordship in my life. But to really get to the place of lordship, I had to come back to the place of rest. And I had to believe, first of all, God's good. Secondly, I had to believe that everything that I had need of, he had already provided and he promised me in that scripture. Was he lying to me or not? My question to you this morning is, is he lying to you or not? Did he say something? It's what, the, it's what the devil says. Did God really say? Has God really? And, and here's the thing. You actually need to answer that question. 
If you are going to be fruitful in this life, if you're going to parent well, if you're going to if you're going to lead a productive life, if you're going to do something for the kingdom, if you're going to matter, if you're going to have you know some sort of significance in this world, you've got to answer the question, did God really say? And it's one of the first questions that came out of this was can you rest? It's not that there's no work to do. Remember this, Adam was given tasks, Adam and Eve, they were given tasks. He said, I need you to keep the garden. I need you to I need you to tend it. So it needed tending. There weren't thorns. Remember this. The, all the things that we think of, when we hear the word tend the garden, don't take the fall and overlay the fall on that statement. Because if you do, you miss what God's trying to say to you in the new covenant. What was lost in the original sin was restored at the cross of Christ for you as a believer. So what would that look like? Let me, let me just give you really three things but kind of two. And that's this. The first thing it's going to do is it's going to humble you and it's going to remind you. So let me read you a scripture. This will humble you because all of a sudden you realize it doesn't have to be me that does this. My, the key to this is not me to try to create it and do it myself. It's to hear what the Lord is saying and obey Him in it. Right? And some of those things are in the moment, of course. But some of those things are principles and truths. Like, for example, if you don't handle your money biblically, then your money is going to get away from you. That's the way that works. Or it's going to get a hold of you, one of the two. It'll get away from you or it'll become your master, right? So this is Psalm 100. It says, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. So how can you serve the Lord with gladness if you don't believe he's good? We're going to get into that next week. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So when you get that, it will humble you. And what it, I don't know what it takes for some of us to be humbled. Like, what's it going to take for you to finally humble yourself and realize that you're not God, that you don't have it all together, and that you need God to help you, that you need him in your life? What's it going to take for that to occur in you? I think many of us have already gotten there, but we've forgotten so all this does is just, it humbles us, but it also reminds us, if you're a believer, hey, it's okay that I'm supposed to be in this spot. Let me finish with this scripture. The last thing it'll do is it'll encourage us. We can be confident, not arrogant, but confident. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but here's Hebrews 4.16. I've read this a million times if I've read it once. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. It's talking about what grace can do. When you understand who God is, what he's done for you, what the cross represents, his love for you, how you can come for help in time of need. Why? God's intent is not to, to make you suffer, right? We hear this all the time, yeah, I have to have a theology of suffering. Well, I understand that, that we live in a fallen world, and there are going to be things that the enemy throws at us. But we don't have to catch them, <laughs> right? I have, I have FedEx guy tried to deliver a package the other day to my house. He's like, uh, this is yours, and I'm like, no, it's not. He's like, well, it's got your name on it. I'm like, I don't care. I'm, how many times you put my name all over it? Put my picture on it. I did not order it. I will not sign for it. You take it back with you where, you where it came from. I don't know where that is. I don't even care where it is. Put it back on the truck. Don't leave it at this house. You have to make some decisions about what is yours to take in. If you, if what you receive, what you signed for, right, what you take into your life, that, that defines you. 
And that's why the enemy lies to you and why he says the things he does and why he tries to get you to do things outside of God's way. We talked about this with, with singles and, and, and teenagers, especially as they come up into that place where sexuality begins to become a, you know, an issue in their life. And so the question is always, well, you know, I mean, what's the difference if you love someone, just sleep with them? I'm like, well, no, I hear you, right? But let's go back to the way God designed it. Does that, is that really, does that, how's that working out for you? <laughs> and it doesn't. It just doesn't, right? Feels good in the moment. Of course it does. So does eating, you know, 50 pounds of chocolate, but you're probably going to get sick and throw up all over everybody at some point, right? So this, this scripture captures me. It says, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence in God comes from rest. I know what I'm about, son, to quote a very masculine man, right? <laughs> I know what I'm about. Why? Because I've spent time in the garden with God. I've walked with him in the cool of the day. I know what he's called me to. I know what is mine to do. I know what is not mine to do. I, I sell, I, we were talking just a minute about Tim um, and leading our, our men's group. And really a movement is what we pray for, not just a group of men, but a men's movement in our church beginning here. But to establish something about what it is to be a man in the kingdom of God. Because it's not machismo. It's not all the things the world says a man is, Right? It's how if we missed it, actually, and found out what God has said about who we're to be. And it causes no, you know, small challenge in our lives. But one of the things I celebrate about Tim is God didn't call Dave Hale to leave our, lead our men's movement. He called Tim to do it. Now, I can get all insecure and go, well, you know, look, Tim's, well, Tim's a manly man, you know, and I'm not. And, you know, Tim flew Apache helicopters, and I didn't. But, you know, I was a martial artist. I'm just saying, Tim, I've had... I've had some things happen in my own life, too. I just want to remind you of that. <laughs> my point is you can't do that if you haven't secured that in your own heart, that it's not mine to do what God has given Tim. So, so not only do, am I not jealous or insecure about that, we celebrate the living daylights out of that because it's a beautiful thing to watch. And I just want to remind you that every single one of us are like that. If you compare yourselves amongst yourselves, you're not wise, Scripture says. Why? Because what they heard in the cool of the day and what you heard in the cool of the day are not the same thing. And don't get me wrong, there are principles, there are truths that will be the same, but I'm talking about you individually. And until you settle that, you're, you're never going to come to God and say, God, help me, because you know you're asking for God to help you to do something He never asked you to do. We, you see this all the time in counseling. Hey, will you you know, what do you think about this relationship? I think it's stupid, right? <laughs> I can spend 20 minutes of grace and mercy telling you why it's stupid, but we could just stop there if you can hear that. Which way do we? No, no, I think it's going to be fine. Okie dokie, let me know how that works out for you. <laughs> and we'll be here to pick up the pieces when you're all done with that foolishness, right? Why? Not because I'm judging it, but because there, there's truths and there's, there's, there's the way God does it and then there's our own way. And when we, when we think we're our own maker, when we think we're, we're not the sheep of his pasture, we're the ram of our own, right? When we think that, that's when we begin to get in trouble. And then you compound that individual sin into a, a marriage, into a family, into a community, into a nation, and you get what we're seeing around us all the time. It's what you get. It only breaks down. And so I just want to challenge us as we, as we go into this. As we, you know, we were born for such a time as this. 
the answer to, you know, everything that's happening is not to all of a sudden, oh, we've got to do everything different, unless maybe there's some things you need to do different. Don't get me wrong. That's, that's of course, God is going to speak to that. But some of this we know. How, how do you do this? How, how, do you, how do you push back against racism? You know, one of the things that you're hearing right now is it's not enough to be, um, you know, not racist. I mean, it's not enough to be, um, how, how, what's the phrase? You can't be a racist. You have to be an anti-racist. I'm sorry. You don't get to do that. You're trying to define me by something that God isn't defining me by. I, I don't, if you live your life out of I don't, you fall under the law. Thou shalt not, right? And you begin to build your life out of all the things you shouldn't be doing. What you're really saying is, this is work by the sweat of my brow. And, and, and I'm trying to bring fruitfulness in a way God never designed it to be brought. And so we need to adjust who we are if the adjustment needs to be there. Sometimes we just need to be confident that we are doing what God has called us to do and settle our hearts in it and don't be dismayed and don't be afraid and don't be pushed back against. Don't let people walk on you. Don't let you can take a stand and not have to say a word, although sometimes you do. I decided a long time, someone asked me not, not too long ago, they said, hey, what happens if you, you know, are you going to have to do um, same-sex marriage? Or, or what, what's going to happen if you do that? You know, the government's going to require it. <laughs> they can require all they want. I'm not going to do it. I'll pay the price for civil disobedience, of course, right? But that decision didn't come today when this came up. That decision came 30-something years ago when I gave my life to Christ and said, Lord, I've been doing it wrong, and I submit myself now to your plan and your purpose and recognize that you've been doing it all right all along, and I'm the one that needs to adjust. I'm not asking you to come into my, uh, you know, come into my life. Really, what I'm doing is I'm coming into your life. And so I just want to leave you with that. You can walk in confidence if you've been walking with God in the cool of the day, in the place of rest, if you settled in your heart who God is, what he has asked of you in grace. If you can, you're going to walk in confidence. If not, you're going to walk in arrogance because you're building it upon what you think you can do and you're going to overestimate it and shoot yourself in the foot and it's going to suck for you at some point. And God's heart in all of this is to rescue us from our brokenness and our sin, to tear down the arrogance in its place, put confidence, but you can only have confidence if you've been walking with him in the cool of the day. Why don't you stand with me? I hope this is helpful. Again, I'm, my heart is I want to so often, I want to just use this time to speak to the issues at hand in our day. And, and I'll do that sometimes, um, you know, bring that out as in the message if it's fair and I feel like it's part of what God's called me to do. But I prayed long and hard about what to preach into next, and this series came up. And I feel like the Lord said, I want to talk to you about this because if you get this right, then all this other stuff will fall into place. So I just want to encourage you. Um, walk with him in the cool of the day. Because of what Jesus has done, his grace and his mercy and his kindness, the Bible says he no longer holds your sin against you. So you can come into his presence. You can, first of all, become a believer. Ask God to forgive you of, of, of the sin, the brokenness, the, the walking away from him, and come into his plan. Don't try to get him to come into yours. Don't add Jesus as a program in your life. That's not going to help you at all. Right? All that's going to do is make you religious and mean. Right? That's what it does. But come to that place of freedom of saying, God, I want to do it your way. Will you teach me? This is what Jesus said. when He didn't say pray this prayer. It's not what Jesus said. 
when he was here on the earth. He said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I will make you fruitful, but follow me. And Peter learned that valuable lesson when he said, I want you to cast the net over. And Peter said, remember, I've been working all night, Lord. You don't know what you're, this is the implied. You don't know what you're talking about. You're not a fisherman, right? You're not part of this industry, Lord. You don't understand fisherman things, right? <laughs> and Jesus like, I, I, looks at Peter, just, are you going to throw the net or not? I just, I'm asking, are you going to, okay, Lord, and he throws it over, about sinks his boat with the fruitfulness that came from the rest in walking with Jesus in the cool of the day. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful picture of rest that we find in the Sabbath. Um, but Lord, it's not that we're, we're resting from our labor, Lord. That's not what you did. Um, Lord, we're working from this place of rest. We're being productive and fruitful from the place of walking with you in the cool of the day. God, help us to give you time to remember that we may need to adjust some things in our life, change some patterns in our life to give you time so I can spend time hearing your voice, reading your word, understanding, gaining understanding of who you are and what you ask of me, Lord, especially when it means I can come into this place called grace. And God, from that place, would you make us fruitful? Would you make us, as your word says in John, Lord, that we would have fruit and that our fruit would remain. And so we say thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as a reminder, if you need prayer, um, just sit where you are and we'll come. Uh, one of the leaders will come over and pray with you. If not, if you would, go ahead and begin to make your way out of the building. We're going to do all the sanitation and all the things that we do. Sanitizing, not sanitation, my bad. <laughs> thank you, guys. Y'all have a wonderful week.